Good morning, New Heights. Have you ever thought that God asked you to do something? And then when you tried to do it, things didn't go right. And you struggled to do the very thing God called you to do. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe you're in that marriage right now. I don't know. You thought God had called you to become committed to this person. And, and then it becomes incredibly difficult for months or years or maybe even decades. Or maybe you're in a really difficult situation right now through no fault of your own, wondering if God sees you or if he even cares. Jesus himself felt like that, at least once we know from Scripture. When he wrapped himself in human flesh and came to earth on a mission from God to demonstrate his great love for us, remember his words that he screamed in agony from the cross when he was acting in obedience to God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried out. Jesus told his disciples to do something very specific one evening. Simple. He told them to leave him alone, get in a boat, and go to the other side of the lake, the Sea of the Galilee. It should have been a quick, easy four-mile trip for some experienced fishermen. Well, let's see how things go for them. before we get to our text this morning first, though. Let me set the scene for us. Remember, Jesus had miraculously fed thousands of people from a few loaves and a few fish. John tells us the crowds were so impressed they wanted to make him king. Jesus wanted no part of that. Remember, Satan had tried that earlier with Jesus, offering him a kingdom. But Jesus came to earth to pay a cosmic penalty that his own sense of justice required. He would tell Pilate later, that his kingdom was not of this world, at least not yet. Putting in other biblical terms, he came to buy a bride, and there were no shortcuts. After miraculously feeding those thousands of people, he will leave the crowd, taking his disciples with him, and then he's going to send all of them off in a boat and spend the night alone with God in prayer. Now, with that backstory in mind, let's visit the text for this morning. Beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, I invite you to turn with me if you have a Bible handy, and let's look at the text together. Mark records that after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, leaving the disciples, he goes up on the mountainside to pray. The disciples were reluctant to get in the boat. They probably wanted to stay with Jesus, or maybe they too wanted to cry him king, but he made them get into the boat and go on ahead. Later that night, it's the middle of the night now, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. And supernaturally, he sees several miles out into the dark, the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Another storm had come up. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. But when they see him walking on the lake, they think he's a ghost, and they're scared. They cry out because they all saw him, and they were terrified. Immediately, he speaks to them and says, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. One of the most common commands in Scripture to Christians and God followers is, Don't be afraid. God is with us. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. That's suddenly, immediately, and supernaturally. 
They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the lows. Their hearts were hardened. When they'd crossed over, they landed a place called Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people began to recognize Jesus as the healer, the miracle worker. They run through the whole region carrying sick on mats to wherever he, they heard he was. And wherever he went as he heads toward Capernaum, into villages, towns, or countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces when he'd pass through town. And they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Wow. If you combine Matthew and John's accounts, two other first century historians, two other gospel historians, two other Jesus historians, if you combine their account of this event and Mark's account, we get a lot more additional information. This definitely takes place on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, the lake. The distance he asked him to travel was probably about four miles. It's not clear exactly where they were headed or, or even exactly where they landed, but that's really not that important. They will eventually end up in Capernaum, but they may have walked part of the way after landing nearby. It's also unknown how the disciples thought Jesus was going to get to where they were the next day. Perhaps they thought he would catch a ride with another boat. We just don't know. When Jesus finally arrives near the disciples walking on water, they've been literally rowing almost all night. It's shortly before dawn. A trip that should have taken one to two hours literally was now taking all night. When Mark records that Jesus sees the disciples several miles away, John says it's three to four miles, straining at the oars, this is obviously supernatural sight. You can't see that far in the dark. Here's some other verses that are important. To let us know that God sees us wherever we are. And again, some of you may be in very difficult situations this morning. But I just want to remind you from Scripture, not just from the story, from other Scriptures, that God sees you and He cares there are a lot of Old Testament, New Testament verses that say this. Here's a couple. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And then Hebrews 4, 13, the writer of Hebrews says this. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. When Mark says the disciples didn't understand about the loaves, he means they did not fully grasp the implications of Jesus being able to create food. They didn't understand the fullness of his power or certainly appreciate his deity. Matthew tells us that as a result of this miracle of walking on water, we're going to look at that text in just a minute. They literally, the disciples at least, worshipped him when he got in the boat. Ascribing deity to him, he not only could command the forces of nature. They'd seen him do that earlier. Remember, he'd stopped a storm earlier when he'd been asleep in the boat and they'd woke him up on another occasion. 
But now they know he can literally defy the laws of gravity. Whenever he chooses. By the way, the phrase, it is I, can also be translated, I am. And they know exactly what that means. He is ascribing to himself deity. That may be the reason, in addition to the miracle he just done, that they worship him when he gets in the boat. Mark is the only one of the three Jesus historians that says Jesus intended to pass them by. It can also be translated, he intended to pass their way or come near to them. This is also the night that one of the more bolder and brasher disciples, Peter, walks on water. Mark got his information from Peter, according to the early church historians, Mark is writing literally the stories that Peter has told him about what happened during the lifetime of Jesus. So Peter may not have wanted to highlight himself, so he left it out. But Matthew didn't leave it out. And I want you to turn with me now to Matthew 14, verses 27 through 33. And let's see it's the story of Peter trying to venture out and walk on water. Matthew Chapter 14, beginning in verse 27. But Jesus immediately said to them again, Matthew records the thing, same thing Mark did, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Again, a very common command in Scripture and applicable to us today. Lord, is it you, Peter says, tell me to come to you on the water. Wow, that's an incredible faith. Come, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat and walked on water and came toward Jesus. But then he starts looking around and he sees the wind and he gets afraid and he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. How many times have I cried that or you cried that? And God came to our rescue. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why would you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. John records that when Jesus got into the boat, not only did the wind suddenly stop, the boat supernaturally immediately was transported or teleported to shore. I want to document for us right now. I think it's good to do this. The miracles in this incredible historical account of the three Jesus historians. If you combine Matthew, Mark, and John's account, I come up with seven miracles. And I want us to reflect on those seven miracles just for a moment. First, there's that creative miracle of the feeding of thousands of people from a few loaves and a few fish. By the way, that was cooked bread and cooked fish that Jesus created. Secondly, Jesus supernaturally saw the disciples in the storm miles away. Thirdly, Jesus walked on water, defying the laws of gravity. Fourthly, Jesus enabled Peter to defy the laws of gravity and walk on water. Fifthly, Jesus stopped the wind or the storm again. Sixthly, The boat was supernaturally transported to shore. Seventh, Jesus healed a whole lot of sick people. 
Question for you this morning. Did these three first century historians, these writers, make all this up? I mean, that's a lot to make up. If you didn't believe it's made up, then it's time to stake your life on the main character of the story and his teachings. Seriously. I mean, did they make it up or did they not make it up? That's your logical option. And if you conclude the stories are true, that these men didn't just fantasize this and make it up for some unknown reason, then you ought to be willing to stake your time, your talent, and your influence on the facts and the truth of the story and the hero of the story. An aside, by the way, if you haven't noticed lately, the winds of culture are not blowing very favorably right now for Bible-believing Jesus followers in America. I hope I'm wrong, but every indication points toward really difficult times ahead for Jesus followers. You need to decide. I think it's incredibly important that you decide what you believe about this book. I know there are parts of the book that are difficult to understand or process. Even Peter said that about Paul's writing, by the way. That's incredibly comforting to me. Especially parts of the Old Testament. Maybe the genocide stories. They bother you like they bother me. But I'm trusting God. He'll sort that out someday. I'm trusting God to be just and merciful. Or maybe the ark stories or some of those incredible Old Testament stories, they just seem too far-fetched to be real. But I want to remind you of something this morning. This faith, this orthodoxy, this biblical and historical record has been handed down to you and I through the blood of the martyrs. It's been relied on for Christians for 2,000 years plus. And it's either true or it's not true. 66 books written by about 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years. None of them knowing what appears someday in a book consolidated as, quote, the Bible. And picking and choosing what to keep and what to throw out based on cultural whims, I would suggest is not a good option. The winds of culture, by the way, shifted for Jesus as well. About a year or two later, after this scene on the mountainside and on the lake, he found himself rejected by the crowds. The same type of people, probably some of them same identically, that had earlier wanted to crown him king on that hillside, now wanted to kill him. I don't know about you, but again... I'm going to stake everything that I have. And whatever sand I've got left in my hourglass, whatever time I've got left on this earth and all my resources on the truth of the Bible and its main character, Jesus Christ. You get to decide. But I believe that if you choose to identify fully with the truths of this book, it may cost you something in the not too distant future. In this world, as Jesus says, you may have trouble, but heaven awaits. An eternity of bliss with the most powerful and wonderful being 
in the universe. Applications this morning. Number one, if Jesus needed significant time alone with God, so do we. I strongly recommend it as a discipline. Number two, obey God. Simply obey God. Obey the principles of the book. And then when God specifically speaks to you and asks you to do something, be obedient to his calling. Your obedience may be hard at times, but he promises to be with you and to be with us. One passage that says that very clearly is Matthew 28, 20. He's with us always as we obey him, even to the ends of the age. Number three, have faith that he sees you. He abides with you. Believe it. Let's back up a minute to the story and put ourselves on that boat. And I want you to ask yourself, what would you have been thinking the moment before Jesus arrived walking on the water? Right before Jesus showed up, what would you have been thinking? I want to share with you some words from one of my devotionals. I'm sure devotional, it's, it's a very popular devotional book. It's Paul David Tripp's New Morning Mercies. I'm sure many of you are using it. This, this was a week or so ago. And I've added a couple of sentences to what Paul David Tripp said. Here it goes. If you belong to God then, to tell yourself you can't do what God's called you to do is to preach to yourself private heresy. You've been enabled by grace. Every day we never stop talking to ourselves. We never stop preaching some kind of gospel, some kind of supposed truth to ourselves. A mantra, so to speak. It's either the gospel of the enemy, aloneness, partiality, poverty, inability, functional hopelessness, or it's a true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel of hope, mercy, forgiveness, love, rescue, transformation, of never being alone, of never being without help of the one who is near, the one who sees, the one who cares, of a beautiful forever with Jesus, a washing love and victory. We're always listening to what we're preaching to, listening to ourselves. So question, application question. Today, what kind of gospel will you preach to yourself? And what effect will it have on the way you live? Don't mimic the liar's Voice. Don't mimic the liar's voice. Embrace the truth. Live in the truth. Speak the truth. Believe the truth and think the truth. Number four. There will always be storms and struggles in life. It's part of life, as Solomon said, down here under the sun. Jesus can stop storms, but he doesn't always do it. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told Nebuchadnezzar, when they were about to be thrown in a fiery furnace, he can deliver us. God can deliver us from the fiery furnace if he chooses. But if he doesn't, he's still God. And we're going to obey him anyway. Number five, God continued to reveal himself, Jesus did, more and more to his disciples as they continued to follow and obey him. There's a principle here. He'll do the same thing for you. 
It may be in different ways, but he promises to reveal himself personally to those that seek him with all their resolve. That's all I've got for us this morning. I want to pray for us now, and I'll let you go on about the business of living. Bow with me. Lord, I don't want to get caught in storms. <laughs> I'm tired of getting caught in storms. I've been caught in some storms this week. We don't want to face trials or be ostracized or be persecuted or be attacked or be mistreated. But we know that you were. And forgive us not, for not believing. Forgive me for not believing you when you said we would be. Give us the faith we need to believe that you are with us no matter what storm we're in. Please, please, please supernaturally deliver us and care for us and show up for us in powerful ways. Strengthen us and help us in our unbelief. Please keep drawing nearer and nearer to us, revealing more and more of your supernatural power and your love to us. We love you and we thank you for abiding with us, your abiding presence in our lives. In the name above every name, I speak blessing on everyone listening as they pursue you this week. Me as well. In Jesus' name, amen.